Okay. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to this uh, very bright, sunny day, right? Surprised us. Last night they said it was going to be this, and they were right. They were right. Um, we're in a, a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the, the New Testament story of Je- one of the stories of Jesus that we see there in the New Testament. And um, today our, our, we're talking about the, the story of the paralytic, the paralytic in chapter 2. Now, we'll be looking at, at a somewhat familiar healing story. It's familiar to many of us and still one of the most unique stories in, in the Gospels. Um, it's a story about, uh, about persistence and desperation, desperate action. The feeling of desperation really moves people to action. Uh, many are watching the Olympics, and there's a lot of intrigue in the Olympics uh, uh, this year. Um, the, the, some of the athletes are, uh, are they're in South Korea, and some of the drama is uh, with the Korean politics, if you're aware of that. In the last six years, over 31,000 North Koreans have defected away from Kim Jong-un's totalitarian regime. Uh, and there are almost 500 athletes in South Korea for the games, and they are constantly under surveillance 24-7 by staff <laughs> who are actually informants for the regime. And these athletes are very aware of the negative consequences that will take place for their families if they decide to defect. And so probably they won't do that. Things, bad things can happen to your family when you defect. But... It's amazing that over the years, many people have defected uh, because desperation to get away is a major motivation for people. You know, there was a different kind of, of, of desperation that we saw Wednesday in, in the tragedy that happened in Florida. A, a, tra- a young man Stone, um, uh, at Stoneman Douglas High School, as, we've just, as we heard earlier, um, 19-year-old kid, frustrated, angry, somehow feeling extremely desperate that led him to that tragic action. Desperation can motivate people, can it? For good or for evil. In our paralytic story today, we're going to see a, a, a desperate motivation that becomes very positive. Ultimately, it, it led this, this, this man to experience the healing and the salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the passage. Uh, Mark 2, Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, ESV translation. <clears throat> and when he returned, speaking of Jesus, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately... Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that, that, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easy to, easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose 
and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them, before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. Our series in Mark, we're trying to talk about discipleship, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, as Mark presents it. Uh, he presents Jesus, his universal call to, to be a disciple, to call, to call to discipleship, to follow Jesus. And we're trying to track that through as we look at this gospel. Last week, we looked at an interesting passage. It was a day in the life of Jesus, a Sabbath day in Jesus' life. At the end of chapter 1, he went to Sabbath worship, and uh, you're thinking Sabbath worship would be peaceful, but there was an unclean spirit, and Jesus, had to, Jesus he didn't only teach, he, he exercised uh, the unclean spirit there. He went home and healed uh, Simon's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever. Evening came, and then now that Sabbath rules couldn't be broken, the, the, the whole city flocked to the door to, to, because Jesus was the healer. They'd heard about it that morning. And he healed many people at the house. It was a great crowd. He woke up the next morning early to pray. And as he came back from prayer, they, they were searching for him. Lord, come on, there's more and more people who have needs. Come on, you've got to be the healer. He said, no, let's go to the next town. And they go to the next town. And here in chapter 2, Mark shows us, again, huge crowds. This time, it seems that the clear priority is preaching the word. It says that in chapter 2. He's been preaching in, in, in the early parts of his ministry about the kingdom of God and, and people listening to his message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the good news. Your sins can be forgiven by God if you repent. It seems to be the essence of what Jesus' early message was. Mark uses this story to show us some things about salvation. I want us to see some things about salvation. Salvation comes when seeing our need, we call on the Lord. We call on the name of the Lord. When we see our need, by faith we call on his name. The story is simple, very simple. It's about desperation. It's about faith, and it's, it's about faith that, that focuses on Jesus as a remedy. And that's what we're going to talk about. My outline is about the necessity of desperation, the necessity of faith, and the necessity of Jesus when it comes to having a genuine encounter with the living God. Desperation, faith, and Jesus. Verses 3 to 4, the, the necessity of desperation. See, they came bringing this paralytic that was carried by four men. The origin of this man's paralysis is not, not even an issue in the passage. We don't know. It just probably wasn't important. But what, what is important is that the, despite the crowds, his four friends didn't give up. I mean, imagine their trip to the house. Then they finally get there, and they think, that, okay, now Jesus can, can heal this man, and they can't even get in the door. They look, lift up the ladder into the roof, down to the house where Jesus is preaching, apparently, and I'm sure by now Jesus was preaching, but he had stopped, and the people were looking. That's a great depiction of it. He's, he's, through, the, through the roof they come, but carrying their friend. And the next picture, I believe, shows kind of what those roofs were like. They, they, they were made, to, they were thatched roofs, and it wasn't strange that uh, he would go up onto the roof. Many, many of you, maybe some of you live in one of the lofts. Uh, uh, downtown in uh, uh, a row house. It has a loft. So some, some houses are, are made so you can go on the roof. Well, the houses in that day, many of them, were made. So you could actually go up on the roof like that and, and take a nap or whatever you wanted to do. And so, but, but, so there was a ladder, and they went in, but there they are. Through the, the roof, they come, 
And uh, think of this paralytic. He's a man. He, you know, he, he, he can't run. He can't sprint. He can't walk. I imagine he probably couldn't even crawl. He needs help. He's totally immobilized. He's dependent on others. His physical condition is a picture of the spiritual condition of all people. We all have a spiritual paralysis. We are, Ephesians says, dead in trespasses and sins. We can't walk with God unless God breathes spiritual life into us. So God's salvation is for those, like the paralytic, who are desperate. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to know God? Do you want to have eternal life? Do you want God to work in your life? He comes to people who are desperate and needy and know it. And the psalmists really show that all over the Psalms. We heard in the reading of Scripture, Psalm 3. Here's some Psalms. Answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my word, hear my prayer. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 7, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. You, see the, you feel the desperation in the voice of the psalmist there. In all of the psalms we, we see that. Salvation, conversion, salvation, an encounter with God comes for people who are desperate. It was in 1967, it was a cold January morning, this is a cold February morning, a cold January morning for me, uh, that my life was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just, just as every Sunday morning, our family uh, rose up, dressed up, went up to town to church in D.C., Meridian Hill Baptist Church, every week, though familiar with all the church traditions and the lingo and the jargon and all, all of that, I didn't have an in-depth understanding of it all, and of what, particularly what it meant to trust Christ as my sin-bearer, or to be my strength, to my enabler, or to be my continual propitiation for my sin. Didn't understand that. I didn't understand that I was connecting myself to a body of all types of people spanning across the generations, spanning across the centuries, spanning across the world. All I knew was a simple fact. And, and Mrs. Thomas, my Sunday school teacher, uh, that morning reminded me clearly of this, that I was not in Christ. I had never made a personal decision myself to be baptized, signaling my commitment to follow Christ. And so, unless I walked the aisle, shook the pastor's hand, saying that I want to follow Christ and get baptized, not going to be good for me when I stood before God. That's all I knew. That's what I knew. But I, but I was not saved because I walked the aisle that morning and got wet that night. No, th th those are outward signs of what was going on in my heart. My heart was convicted of my sinful state and pondering the fact Pondering, pondering those facts, I came to the place where in desperation, you see, I called on the Lord. I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me from my sins. That's all I knew. That was enough. 
that was enough. See, weak, hopeless enemies of God, dead in trespasses and sins, lost, far, without, without God in the world, following the ways of the Gentiles. These are the phrases that the New Testament uses about people who don't know the Lord yet. And that's who we all are until we come to him. You know, in John 3, John chapter 3 and 4, I love John's gospel. There's, there's two stories in John 3 and 4 of, of two people. One is, is Nicodemus. We can see that. It's kind of dark there. One is, is Nicodemus, who was the, re, the religious man, and the other, he was a religious Jewish man, and the other is, is a woman, an irreligious woman of Samaria at the, at the well. You probably know those stories, but the, I saw a great contrast of those two. Uh, uh, the, the, the occasion for their visit was very different. Uh, Nicodemus, his, he came at night. It was, very, it was planned. It was very deliberate. Um, the encounter that Jesus had with a woman at the well was a, was a, quote, chance encounter. They just happened to show up at the well at the same time. It was a chance, quote, unquote, encounter. <laughs> now, the, the content of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus was very theological. It was about Old Testament, about, about, about some, some important things from the scriptures. The content of the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well was, was very practical. It was about, you, 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 need, you, need, you need a drink? <laughs> it was about, um, tell me about your husband. It was practical things. He didn't get into theology with her that much. Of course, uh, the Nicodemus was a Jew, and she was a woman from Samaria. Um, he was highly respected, Nicodemus. was a ruler, a teacher. She was despised in immoral women. That's why she was there at the well alone, not with the other women to have conversation and fellowship. She was by herself. She was an immoral outcast woman. He was a male. She was a woman. Again, contrast between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus, he had a, he was a kind of a polite uh, attitude. He called Jesus rabbi with respect. And, and, and the woman, it began with some, some tension and hostility between them in, in that conversation. Nicodemus, uh, the, the conversation seemed to fade out as... It became more of a dialogue as he just didn't understand what was talking and Jesus began to talk to him more and more and more as the conversation faded. But with the, with, with the woman at the well, there was a continual back and forth in their conversation as she, as she was drawn more to what he was saying. And of course, finally, the result. The result with Nicodemus is not mentioned in the passage of John 3. Later in the Gospels, it seems that he was very positive towards, towards Christ, towards the end of Christ's life. But the results of the Samaritan woman conversation are incredible in John chapter 4. <laughs> the woman, is, is, she goes to the city, she brings people back to, to, meet, to meet Jesus, Jesus said to, and disciples have to stay longer than they had intended because a, a revival breaks out there. A contrast. You know, the difference between you must be born again to Nicodemus was, was met with confusion and religious pride. But the, the, the you can drink water and never be thirsty again, that the women heard, it was met with wonder, excitement. Why? Because she had the sense of desperation. In fact, she, she expressed to her friends when she came back, come see this man who told me everything about myself. She knew her need. She knew her need. Do you really want to know God? Do you want to grow, grow in your relationship to God? knowing him better, to experience his grace more fully. God comes to us when we seek him, 
when we seek his salvation, when we seek his deliverance, when we seek his comfort, when we come out of our need, out of our weakness, out of our desperation, with a sense that we need him and only him. So we, that, that, that's why I love the song that was picked, that we sang. Simple song, but it's the truth. We need him. Something else is also needed if you want to experience God's presence, his blessing, his salvation. This is the second thing. It's in verse 5. It's in verse 5. It's one word, faith. The necessity of faith. I want to talk about that. Um, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's very interesting in verse 5 because he says he saw their faith. That's, now, now, that means first... He saw it. There was something observable and visible that he saw. Interesting. He saw faith. And the, 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 the book of James, faith that it works as yet. There was something observable and visible about, about his faith. But then the most interesting thing is he says he saw their faith. It's plural. Plural. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Is the paralytic's faith included in the there? That's always a question that, that, that we go back and forth on. It says he saw their faith, not his faith, their faith. It, is the paralytic's faith included in that? I believe it was uh, a couple things. I think scripture is clear that the, that the gate that leads to salvation is a narrow gate, and we go through it one at a time. We must go through that gate. We, we can't go on the shoulders of another person. We can't go beside. We have to go one at a time. It's a door. It's a gate. Matthew chapter 7. And, and by the way, the... Um, the, the, the Mormon cult, the Mormon church, which is a cult, has a thing that they call baptism for the dead, where you can actually be baptized for somebody else who is dead. It's a, that's one of those strange beliefs of the Mormon uh, a cult, proxy baptism. Um, no, it's, this is a personal thing here. The text itself also gives us a clue, not a strong clue, but a clue that makes me lean in the direction that he did have faith. Jesus says to the man later in verses 11 and 12, rise up, and he does. He responds to Jesus. And his rising is a small act of faith, but it's an act of faith, isn't it? How much faith is needed to be saved by Jesus? How much faith is needed to be healed by Jesus in this text? Well, I think the answer is not much. Jesus talked about a grain of a mustard seed, didn't he? Why? Because it's not faith that saves us. It is Jesus that saves us. We'll say that again. It's not faith that saves us. It's Jesus that saves us. Jesus who saves us. Faith is merely that which connects us to Jesus. You're sick, and so you need to take a pill. And so you take the pill with hope that you'll get better. But it says when you take that pill, take it with water. Okay, take it with water. And soon you realize you're getting better. Did, you, did, did the water heal you? No. The pill healed you. Faith is like the water. <laughs> it is needed. But it isn't what does the work. The pill does the work. Romans 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified or declared righteous. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. With the heart. Heart. We experience faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we exercise faith all the time. I'm sure there's not a person here who doesn't live a day without exercising some kind of faith. 
faith in something. I was thinking about the illustration of, of driving a car. <laughs> driving a car, it take, it's an incredible act of faith when you really think about it. Um, you have to have faith in the manufacture of the vehicle, don't you? You have to have faith in the gas attendant that he put the right kind of gas in there. That's not, have you ever had gas that was bad gas? I had one type of gas that had water in it and the car just sputtered. It, it, you got to have assurance that the gas is correct. You have to have assurance that the street lights are synchronized properly. You ever think about that? Take faith. You don't stop at every light, every, every corner. No, you, you trust the light's working correctly. You have faith that the other drivers are doing the same thing, right? That they're going to heed the signs and follow the rules of the road. Maybe some of you don't have that faith. That's why you don't drive. I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. Terry and I were talking about this new thing of driverless cars. Driverless, there's a driverless car there. These cars that drive, I was, thinking, I was thinking in the context of, you know, it, it takes a lot of faith to, 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 to trust on the road cars that don't have a driver that's driving them in the driver's seat. But that's coming. That, that, that day is coming. I don't know how fast it's going to come. I don't know if I'm going to be around when it comes. <laughs> but I don't know if I want to be around when it comes. Ter Terry and I were having the conversation in the context of, of marijuana laws. How there are a lot of people who, who are smoking pot more and more as laws become. To, and I don't want to get into that. That's another sub subject. But we were saying, what would you trust? A person that's high or a driverless car? <laughs> because that's where we're going, it seems like. It's going to take a lot of faith to drive. But we, 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 we exercise faith every day, folks. In, in Mark chapter 9, later in the Gospel of Mark, there's a man whose son is, he, Jesus wants to heal his son. He says, do you believe I can do this? He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. How much faith does it take? Only a little bit, if it's faith in Jesus, you see. Saving faith, effective faith, is always about the object of faith and not the intensity of faith. See, see religion promotes and celebrate strong devotion, strong piety, strong faith. But, but true religion, the biblical religion, celebrates the object of faith. See, Jesus didn't come to start a religious system, but to show us how to have a relationship with, with him, with our heavenly father through him, a connection to the true and living God. And that's the good news of the gospel that we celebrate each week. We don't come here each week, to, each week to talk about how religious we are, do we? We come to celebrate Jesus, who died for our sins, to give us eternal life. That's why we gather each, each, each Sunday morning to celebrate that resurrection and that reality. Because it's, it's not about our religion, it's about a relationship with him who has saved us. And, and you see, faith is simple. Faith, faith is, is not for the sophisticated alone, it's for anybody. It's so simple that the poor and the weak and the young and the ignorant can still exercise it and find an encounter with God. The key is that, that one's belief is focused on Jesus Christ the Lord. That's what's key. Not whether one has necessarily the strongest of faith. Many of us know, know the story of Johnny Erickson. You know, uh, over 50 years ago, in July of 67, 
Uh, I think Craig shared a few weeks ago that, of course, that was his, his Young Life uh, uh, club. She was part of that club. His, uh, her sister was, his, was one of the Young Life leaders here in, in, in this area. But in July of 67, she was a teenage girl. She went with her sister to, to the beach on the Chesapeake Bay and suffered a diving accident that rendered her quadriplegic. In addition to quadriplegia, she, she has over the years endured stage three breast cancer and suffers now from severe chronic pain. She's, uh, she lives in California, worships out there with her husband. Uh, here's a, her testimony in an article, uh, interview I saw. She says, when I was first injured, I just w- wanted out of my wheelchair. I wanted to walk again. I wanted to have hands that worked. So I followed every scriptural injunction. I was anointed with oil. I went to the elders. I confessed my sin. I would call my friends up on the telephone and insist, hey, the next time you're going to see me, I'm going to be on my feet. Have faith with me. Believe with me. I remember going to faith healer Catherine Kuhlman's services. She was one of the early proponents of the faith healing ministries that are in the world. Um, that, she, Johnny had strong faith. She comments on the Mark 1 passage that we talked about last week. She says, I read those words, this is why I have come, in Mark 1, and I began to see Jesus' priorities of healing differently. The same man who healed withered hands and blind eyes is also the one who says, if that hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If that eye leads you astray, gouge it out. And she says, God is interested in a deeper healing, a deeper healing. She says, there, there are really more important things in life than walking. There are more important things in life than having the use of your hands. And that's having a heart that's free of the grip of sin and pride and self-centeredness. I'm not saying I've arrived, I've got a long way to go, but I'm on my way. And that's a very good feeling. Joni's faith grew from the early days of her accident now where she has very mature, very strong faith. You know what? She's not saved because she has strong faith. She's saved because she has faith in a strong Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what faith looks like. We're talking about a desperation. We're talking about faith. And the last thing I want to see is just the necessity of an encounter. Is, it must be on, with Jesus. It must be an encounter that's focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 5 to 12, the passage goes on. Jesus saw their faith. Son of, you, you, the Son of Man your sin says your sins are forgiven. And there's an interesting, in verse 9, there's an interesting little thing there in this passage that we, look, that we need to look at rather quickly. He says, um, which is easier to say? And it's a tricky question. See, on, on the one hand, healing can be easily confirmed, can it? But forgiveness is not easily confirmed visually. So in one sense, it's easier for a person to say, be healed. I mean, who's going to know if you're shocked or not? Okay? But on a deeper level, on another level, because of the one asking the question. The question comes to these scribes who know and even ask the rhetorical question, Who can forgive sins but God alone? They understand that. They know that that old saying, to err is human, to forgive is what? Divine. 
They know that. They know that, that concept. They rightly believe that the absolution of sin is the prerogative of God, not of humans. And in fact, there were humans, and still are humans, who do healings by faith and declare they're doing it through the power of God. And, and, and God in Scripture even healed men through Elijah, for example. But forgiveness, to say you can forgive sins, is to say I am God. It's a declaration of divine authority. And Jesus dares to do that. He not only commands a paralytic to rise up and walk as proof that he can do that, which, he can't, be, which can't be seen, forgiveness of sins. He begins that sentence by calling himself, for the first time in Mark's gospel, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And that's pointing to Daniel chapter 7, the messianic figure at the right hand of the Father. Scholars agreed that that was... That was that was the Messiah that they were anticipating. And Jesus, for the first time in Mark's gospel, uses that phrase about himself. It's the Son of Man says, rise up. The authority of Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's the one with authority on earth to heal. And he's the one who can dare to authoritatively say, your sins are forgiven. That's Jesus. And his name is authoritative. In the book of Acts, the name of Jesus is all over the place. Acts chapter 3 you healed a man, the man was, he, he stood up, began to walk, and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And it says later, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The name of Jesus is what healed that man. And then in Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the son that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then later in Acts 4, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all the name of Jesus. Again, the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it's not right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They said, we've got to speak about Jesus. We've got to speak the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is important because he is the mediator. He is the substitute. He's the, 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 the savior. He's the one who satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus Christ who died on a cross for sinners. You know, in the, in the um, Florida shooting just the other day, as we talked about, there were, a lot of, there were several heroes that you've probably heard about. And, and uh, the, the, three, three of the, those who, who perished were heroes were teachers. Scott Bagel who was a, a geography teacher at the school. He was unlocking a classroom for students to hide in and was shot. Um, there's Chris Hickson, who was the school's athletic director. He was killed as he ran toward the sound of the gunfire. And then, and, and then there was Aaron Feist, who was the school's assistant football coach and the security guard, who literally died as a, as a human shield, placing his body between himself and the shooter. Why do we focus on Jesus, because Jesus dying on the cross for us, he became like a human shield for us. He took the punishment that we deserved. That's what the cross was about. And so, I mean, John 15, 13 says, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And that's what those three heroes did on Wednesday. But the scriptures also tell us that Christ didn't die for his friends, he died for his enemies. Romans chapter 5. 
while we were, were his enemies, Christ died for us to put us right with God. So your story, it, it, may, it, it may begin with a sense of desperation. It may continue with a sense of faith, that you need faith in God. But your story's not complete unless your faith in God is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Has your story climaxed yet? Salvation comes when seeing our need, we call on the name of the Lord. Have you come to that point in your life yet? Many people will honor God of some type, but Jesus is the, the, the stumbling block for people, it says in the Scripture. They, they stumble over that name. The Scriptures tell us that every knee shall bow. Some will bow in regret. Others will bow with rejoicing. But every knee shall bow, the Scriptures warn us and tell us. A woman named Carolyn Noel was born in 1817 and the daughter of an Anglican clergyman and a hymn writer. Um, as a young woman, she tried to write poems, poems but, but she gave it up at the age of 20. And then when she, had, she was bedridden, she became invalid and invalid with a serious illness at age 40, and she took up the pen once again. And eventually, in 1861, her poetry was published in a little book called At the Name of Jesus and Other Verses for the Sick and Lonely. And her signature poem, Become a Hymn, is based on Philippians 2, 5 to 11. It's become a hymn that's sung even to this day. I learned it in university. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess him, king of glory now. It's the Father's pleasure that we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was a mighty word. At his voice, the creation sprang at once to sight. All the angel faces, all the hosts of light, thrones and dominations, stars upon their way, all the heavenly orders in their great array, humbled for a season to receive a name from the lips of sinners unto whom he came. Faithfully, he bore it, spotless to the last. He brought it back victorious when from death he passed. Name him, brothers, name him with love strong as death, but with awe and wonder and with bated breath. He's God the Savior. He's Christ the Lord, ever to be worshipped, trusted, and adored. In your hearts, enthrone him. There let him subdue all that is not holy, all that is not true. Crown him as your captain in temptation's hour. Let his will unfold, enfold you in its light and power. Because, brothers, this Lord Jesus shall return again with his Father's glory and with his angel train. For all the wreaths of empire meet upon his brow, and our hearts confess him, King of glory, now. Carolyn Noel, she was an invalid. She was forgiven for her sins, but as far as we know, she never walked again. She knew that Every knee shall bow. Johnny Erickson, 50 years ago, losing her ability to walk. She knows every knee shall bow. And this paralytic who was healed and forgiven of his sins, he knows every knee shall bow. Do you know? Have you bowed? Have you bowed to the Lord Jesus Christ? When we recognize our desperate need, exercising faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, then, and only then, can we have the assurance that comes from Jesus' simple, powerful words. 
your sins are forgiven. Let's pray.